We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Wendy Chamberlain, the Lib Dem MP for North East Fife. Chief Whip of the Liberal Democrats, the Lib Dem spokesperson for Scotland and Wales, and the Lib Dem spokesperson for pensions and welfare. Uh, she's also contributed to and partly edited an excellent new book uh, that's recently come out entitled The Future of Social Democracy, Essays to Mark the 40th Anniversary of the Limehouse Declaration, uh, for which there will be a launch event on Monday the 25th of January. Welcome to the podcast, Wendy. Hi, thanks, Will. Um, so the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, what prompted the uh, writing of this book? What made you decide to contribute to it? Well, I think it's obviously the anniversary on Monday itself, the 40th anniversary of the Limehouse Declaration, which was obviously the start of the SDP that joined with the, the Liberals Alliance, became the Liberal Democrats. And I think important to recognise the contribution of the SDP to the party. And also, I think it's, it you know, if we look at We'll look at the events of, of this week. We, we've obviously seen the inauguration of, of Joe Biden in, in, in the States replacing, you know, I have lots of words to describe <laughs> Donald Trump, but a populist, a, a, a populist, and, and in some ways um, has social democratic principles been on the wane. Um, and so I think the book is useful from the perspective of looking at some really big ticket items and asking where social dem democratic principles have have a place within that because actually if you look um, and contributors talk about this the, there is the reality of some of some real social radical mm. democratic um, principles ideas policies have really really changed uh, the way we live our lives not just in the UK but Europe and elsewhere. Um, now why do you think that the SDP uh, had such an impact on the history of Politics, because if you look at more recent um, splinter groups, like for example Change UK, they perhaps didn't have the same impact in in, in terms of uh, changing the course of political history. Why do you think that was? Um, I think there's a couple. I think there's a couple of reasons. I think the seventies. Um, I was born during the seventies, so don't remember them. But they were clearly a tumultuous time from a political perspective, um, and you saw uh, minority governments. It's, it's easy to, to to forget that you know those uh, were quite common. And, and dare I say, we were having elections on almost a more regular basis than we have over the last five years. And then I definitely think that the standing of the politicians who broke away to form the SDP, Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams, Bill Rogers and David Owen, is the other thing that was mm. very, very clear. And that's not to do any disrespect to those politicians who were involved in Change UK. But I think obviously having held such high elected office in the case of some of them, mm. there was obviously that, that, that key point where well, if they feel this strongly that they are willing to sacrifice, you know, f future political career, which was clearly the, the impact for, for Change UK as well, that uh, people should should take up uh, and, and, and take notice. And I suppose as well, um, I think, you know, given the, the percentages that they reached in the polls, so yeah. ironically that didn't then uh, put itself into seats, <laughs> they really did capture, capture a moment uh, in the early 80s. Mm. Um, do you think, because I mean, you, you mentioned um, 
the polling that the SDP uh, Liberal Alliance had in the 1980s. Do you think that had people been perhaps more willing to uh, back a, a more unconventional party arrangement as the SDP uh, Liberal Alliance uh, was, do you think that they could have overtaken the Labour Party in 1983 uh, as the chief opposition had things been a bit more different and people been a bit more willing to support a, a different kind of party arrangement of course anything's possible when you look at the percentage support that they had but it's always the challenge for a third party in in, U, in uk politics mm. in terms of how do you make that how do you make that breakthrough our, our electoral system uh, indeed our parliament as i've discovered since my election 2019 is is physically and culturally set up for the support of of, of two parties a two-party system so it was a neither labor or, or conservative <laughs> interest to to kind of uh, let them in as it were mm. Um, now, in the introduction of the book, um, Vince Cable talks about the social democratic tradition in the Labour Party, and he says that he only uh, temporarily uh, dominated the Labour Party under Neil Kinnock, John Smith and Tony Blair. Do you agree with that assessment? And if so, why do you think that that was the case? Um, I think overall, generally, yeah, yeah, yes, I, yes, I do. Um, and I think actually the recent history of the Labour Party sort of brings that to light as well. One of the things I think is interesting about the book, though, is the social democratic tradition that we're talking about is not limited to existing uh, within the, the Liberal Democrats today. Um, you know, we have contributors from uh, other parties uh, and none. And obviously you will see that there are a couple of contributors. A good example is Ian Kearns, who's now leading the Social Liberal Foundation, who came to the Liberal Democrats um, from Labour. So actually, there's there, that, that same kind of leader movement um, is taking place so I think for that reason I, I think Vince is on to something there. Do you think that part of the uh, reason that there is this uh, lack of dominance of um, social democracy in uh, the Labour Party is partly to do with that it seems almost like a compromise for some people in the Labour Party that it seems like a, a watering down of ideology and they feel that if they accept certain social democratic principles that this may, you know, uh, unpurify the socialism which they want to bring to government. Uh, I, 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 I can see the logic in, in that argument. What I think rather than talking necessarily about the Labour Party, I think there is that bit in social democracy around a piece of, of pragmatism. And I think from a Liberal Democrat perspective, we are a, a you know, we are a broad church. Mm. So actually, you know, and actually I saw somebody responding, a member responding in relation to the book, how pleased he was to see recognition of our, our liberal, uh, our social democrat tradition, that actually there are key things probably that liberals and social dis uh, democrats disagree on, but we take a pragmatic approach. And actually when it comes to the radical solutions, uh, in the main we're, we're, mm. we're aligned. And, you know, as a party, we, we always like to, to discuss discuss policy. I think sometimes that can, <laughs> that can, um, it means that we're very passionate, we're very well thought through, and, and actually we've we've generally got a good degree of consensus. It's always the irony that our manifestos are are sort of best critiqued by by the experts, but uh, clearly don't uh, cut through to the wider electorate. Mm. Um, at the end of his introduction, um, Sir Vince Cable uh, discusses the need for stronger links uh, with the European Union now that um, we have left. Do you think that this is something that 
people will perhaps be more palatable and be more willing to accept, given some of the disruptions we've already seen uh, with Brexit? of the situation we're currently in is, is um, we will, I think for me, there's been an, almost a thinking that once you're determined to leave the EU and you've left the EU, that you, that's the end of it. You don't need to have further discussion. You don't need to further engage. Thing that uh, really impacts on that is geography. And the reality is we will always have a relationship with the European Union form it takes um, from a trade or cultural perspective because they, they are our nearest neighbours. And yes, you're right. We are obviously seeing a degree of disruption. Obviously, it's not potentially in the public consciousness in the way it would be in normal times. And clearly, we are not in normal times um, during during the pandemic. But I think, you know, Brexit has been described as a, as a slow puncture. And, and arguably, it's been a slow puncture since 2016, as obviously businesses have made decisions and results. And, and, and we're seeing that continuing now. But I wouldn't want to suggest that um, our relationship with the EU is, is something that's that's purely economic. It, it, it's wider. It's wider than that. And, and obviously, as a Scot, I recognise that too. Mm. Um, do you think that this is something that, particularly in Scotland, is going to be uh, an issue in the um, upcoming, if, if they do happen, Scottish parliamentary elections, making that case from parties that are uh, not the SNP, that, you know, even though that we have had Brexit, we do need to um, find some way to continue uh, to work with the European Union and convince uh, the voters that, well, you know, you, you don't need to uh, leave the United Kingdom to necessarily continue to have links with the EU. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the EU is clearly in constitutional debates, clearly, and, and I refer to those in, in, in my chapter of the book, um, are going to continue to be, continue to be a, a, a subject of debate. Um, and, and in many ways, that's right and healthy that democracy grows and changes and develops with, with, with countries. On the other hand, where it completely over, um, overarches all, which is certainly what we've seen over the last decade, at least until uh, the pandemic uh, hit, isn't necessarily isn't necessarily healthy. But yes, it's clearly we're in a position where, from a pro-UK party perspective in Scotland, um, all pro-UK parties are being accused of being pro-Brexit. Now, obviously, that for me as a Liberal Democrat, I am pro-European. I think the best place for UK and Scotland is to be uh, in, in, in the EU. But uh, we had a referendum, we had a general election in 2019, and while the Conservatives of an 80-seat majority uh, rejoin is, is, is a distant prospect, but that doesn't mean that I won't continue to argue for the closest possible relationship and to, to look to rejoin, because I do think that's, that, that's the right thing. But um, yes, it's, uh, it's clearly going to continue to be uh, a, a, an object of debate. Um, now, uh, I'd like to turn to uh, your essay, because um, your essay, which is the first uh, full essay of the book, is about proportional representation. And you make the argument that uh, proportional representation is needed now more than ever because of the, as you mentioned, Conservatives having an 80-seat majority, yet only gaining 44% uh, of the vote. Do you think that this is something that um, people in uh, the public are perhaps going to be more palatable seeing the, the scale of the uh, Conservative Party's majority? Or do you think that it's still something that might be difficult to argue to the public as an important issue? 
Yeah, I, I think there's there's two parts of it for me, and it's actually less to do about the current Conservatives majority, and it's more to do with just in terms of the referendums that we've had. And the reality is for me is referendums in relation to the parliamentary democracy that we currently have in the UK are a bad idea because we elect people to parliament to represent our views. And then we have a referendum on top of that that dictates what those parliamentarians should do. And so I think clearly the closeness of of the referendum in 2016 has kind of driven that that degree of of, of division. And ironically, and and I do mention this this in, in, in the chapter, is that in England, where potentially that prospect of the left behind or aspects around the Brexit mm. vote um, are actually the, the part of the UK that are least well represented from a proportional rep, uh, uh, system because so much of uh, the local democracy and, and um, national democracy is, 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 is first past the post. The second issue I think is, is, is Labour, going back mm. to Labour again, um, because, you know, realistically, and Clive Lewis, I've heard him speak at a couple of events now, where is the pathway to victory um, or our majority uh, Labour government, either in 2024 or arguably beyond into 2028, particularly if the situation in Scotland doesn't change for, for, for Scottish Labour? And, you know, obviously we're approaching uh, Scottish Parliament elections in May and, you know, they're currently leaderless. So that doesn't suspect that it suggests that they're going to be making significant inroads now. So I think there there is an increasing realisation in Labour that uh, something needs to change. And I also think that the cross-party groups such as Makes Votes Matter and Electoral Reform Society have kind of recognised that and it does feel less less tribal as, 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 a, as, as an argument. So Make Votes Matter, for example, are actually taking an approach view, via CLPs where they get CLPs to sign up in support of um, proportional representation. And that's, you know, that very much ground roots. And obviously Labour have moved to STV for, for, for some of their NEC elections. So it suggests that they know that actually the system in its current form uh, uh, doesn't work. Do you think that there's also uh, part of a difficulty in convincing um, the public about the need for electoral reform is that particularly with um, parties like uh, the Liberal Democrats, which obviously, you know, in comparison to some of the other parties don't have as many MPs that there might be, you know, a reaction from some members of the public. Oh, well, you know, it's people who don't have uh, as many MPs. They want to gain more MPs through some uh, change of the system. How best do you think uh, you can combat that kind of uh, prejudice to an argument for electoral reform? I think the cross-party aspect is key. You know, in terms of, and I mentioned Make Vote Matters again, in terms of their good systems, um, the Brexit Party or the Reform Party, as they're now called, are actually one of those signatories because in 2019, the biggest impact the Brexit Party had on the general election was depriving people who wanted to vote for them of the opportunity to do so in Conservative-held seats. So that just, for me, just doesn't seem right, no matter how vehemently I might disagree with the Brexit Party, Reform Party and and, and what they they stand for. And arguably, potentially, if UKIP had 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 better representation, the Brexit Party in Westminster, we might actually have had those discussions and debates out in the open rather than potentially um, the, the the, the place we got to where we go back to that that left behind argument or unheard voices. Mm. Um, one of the things that has been um, 
grinding on in relation to this for a number of years has, of course, been uh, boundary review and changes to the amount of MPs uh, in the House of Commons. How important do you think that that is uh, in relation to changing uh, the democratic setup and making things a bit more equal across the board in terms of representation? Yeah, that's an interesting one as well. And indeed, the boundaries, uh, the Parliament Act uh, has passed through in, in this session of Parliament and indeed I laid for the Liberal Democrats um, in both of those debates. I just think it's a false argument from the government that um, that all votes count equally hmm. if you have constituencies of, 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 of equal size. And, you know, one of the key arguments around first past the post is this politics of place, you know, that you have... Um, and a member of parliament representing a defined area, but actually potentially trying to make each of those defined areas exactly the same size completely weakens that argument of politics of place. I mean, for me, my, my constituency uh, borders the Glenrothes constituency and the boundary line is the high street of Leven one of the main towns in the constituency. So one side of the town is town high street is represented by me and the other by another MP. And that doesn't <laughs> suggest to me a degree of politics of place. And it's also a fallacy that you can't have a politics of place within a proportional representative system. Um, the other thing I must say is, is obviously the, um, the boundary reviews are ongoing, ongoing now, getting, getting underway. But one of the other things that the government has committed to do in this parliament is to do away with the 15-year uh, time limit for people living overseas to vote. Now, as a Liberal Democrat, I'm support, supportive of that. We believe that there should be overseas constituencies that would help you deal with the situation in, of, of Gibraltar, you know, which has been a forgotten part of uh, the UK and the in, in the, the Brexit negotiations. But what's potentially going to happen is you're going to have boundary reviews fixed on the end of March last year, mm. which was the date that was agreed. And potentially you're going to have an unknown number of voters come into constituencies. So actually you're undermining that argument of equal constituencies at the same time. And the final thing to say is by setting the parameters as narrowly as they have, there is a real risk that small changes in a constituency then have a butterfly effect on lots of other constituencies. So I think the reality is for all that, obviously all the, the Conservatives MPs supported the bill, when we actually see the outcomes of the boundary reviews, given the Conservatives' current majority, I suspect there's going to be quite a lot of unhappy Conservative MPs. Um, now, just returning um, to one of the broader themes of um, the book, which is discussed in several essays, is the need for cooperation um, with other parties and uh, social democracy in other countries. Um, now, looking at the United States uh, for a moment, where Joe Biden has, of course, um, just been uh, become president of the United States, uh, do you think it's important to ensure that there is conversation in terms of uh, social democracy and the spreading of social democratic ideas between parties in different countries and encouraging in a time of greater populism and nationalism, more cooperation between different social democratic parties? Yes, in, in short, that, that's a short answer. I'm sure you would expect me to say that. And I suppose that's one of the, the key losses from a European Union perspective in terms of parties, UK parties having representation in the, 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 the European Parliament and, and aligning with uh, similar parties in other countries. I think the other bit, obviously, about social democracy, uh, democracy is that leads you into that bit where you do need to 
it's well I was a police officer for 12 years so we talk about policing by by, by consent and and I think um, governing by consent is is really important as well and I think what we have seen over the last decades not just in the UK but elsewhere clearly in the United States and um, the rise of some pop populist parties in some parts of Europe is that say uh, for you know one side feels that there isn't consent and uh, and that you know there isn't that same um, will to kind of move move forward together so I think that's a uh, really really critical and um, particularly when you look at some of the big challenges that are facing the world as a whole obviously the pandemic is 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 right at the forefront at the moment but we know that what we need to do in terms of the climate emergency has has not gone away and those are going to require you know global uh, approaches, but actually also hyper-local approaches as well. The reality is, is to really deal with the climate emergency, people are going to fundamentally have to change how they live their lives. And the reality is, is I suppose, in terms of our democracies currently is there is a difficulty for politicians to look beyond what's required for in order to ensure their, their next term in, term in office. Um, so we kind of lose that strategic direction. And so actually that's where the consensus comes in for me because there should be broad agreement of this is the direction that we need to go in. So regardless of what party or parties mm. are in power in more proportional systems, that uh, the direction of travel is, is, is overall agreed. Um, now you mentioned obviously the um, climate emergency and this is something that um, is again a reoccurring uh, theme within uh, the book. How um, easy do you think it will be to convince people that there is need for uh, greater uh, green energies and um, that green businesses should be encouraged? Because, of course, you know, there may be a reaction from some people who feel that, you know, oh, well, these uh, green businesses or green industries might not provide uh, the same quality of work that people had in, in, in previous industries. How, how do you think you make that argument to people? Do I say, I think the, the ecological um, changes that we're already seeing are in part doing, do, doing, that, uh, doing that for us. Um, obviously we've had very devastating floods in some parts of Wales and, and, and in England over this last week and, and we can't, you know, we can't not acknowledge that uh, climate change is, is, is playing a, par a part in that. I actually think um, a green recovery um, and I'm somebody who did work in military settlements supporting service leavers into jobs, so some recruitment. I think jobs within the green industry are actually some of the most exciting and innovative uh, jobs that, that we're seeing currently. And if we look at, you know, the decline of, of, of some of the, the, the core traditional sectors um, and increased automation in some of our service sectors, actually, that the, the, the green sector is, is, is where that, that creativity and innovation is going to, is going to come from. And going to be offered to people. Do you think, and I mean obviously um, we've touched a little bit on uh, coronavirus, do you think that coronavirus and the impact that it has had on the economy is going to change the perspective that people have in, in terms of uh, how money should be spent by the government in a similar way uh, that the um, Great Recession in the 1930s and to a certain extent, the uh, 2008 uh, financial uh, crisis made people reconsider how governments spend money and how they use money. Yeah, I, I think, it, well, it's, it's actually 
probably too early to say what those kind of longer term trends or impacts are going to be. You know, we're still in, in, in full lockdown and, and vaccine rollout at an early stage. But I think the couple of things I can say is whoever thought a Conservative government would spend in the way that we have seen this Conservative government spend over the last 12 months. Um, and second of all, I don't think anybody has ever been saying at any point that we should be necessarily spending less. Clearly, there are some uh, groups of MPs such as the coronavirus research group who are looking for us to move out of lockdown as, as, as quickly as, as, as possible. Um, but nobody is saying that the supports shouldn't be offered or shouldn't be in place. So I do think um, that driven by, uh, driven by also people who, for the first time, have come into contact with our welfare system and never had an expectation they would do so to find out that there's a lot of holes in it, I think there will be a, a degree of, of, of shift overall in terms of, of, of how we how we approach things. I think that will be the overall general consensus. I'm not necessarily convinced in the, the sort of medium term that's where the current government will be, but clearly um, they have, uh, you know, the actions they have taken in the last 12 months have been quite unprecedented. Uh, now, throughout uh, the book, one of the... Uh... Motifs that reoccurs is social democracy in contrast to populism and nationalism. Do you think that with the defeating of, John, of Donald Trump, uh, coronavirus and um, some of the inadequacies that we have seen uh, from Brexit, that now is a time that we're going to begin to see a revival of social democracy and uh, people supporting social democratic beliefs in Britain, Europe, and the wider world? The answer to that, Will, is, is I very much hope so. Mm. But I also think um, that we probably have to be realistic. And so where we are just now in terms of the current lockdown we're all experiencing in, in the UK is, is a different place potentially where we were in the first lockdown. Um, you know, January is not the best of months for people's mental health or mm. at, the, at, at the best of times, you know, it does feel like the, the month that has, you know, about 100 days in it, let alone M31. So, yeah, I do think that, so, and, and the reason why I'm saying that is just that there is an element of dissatisfaction, there's an element of increased politicisation or, or opportunism around what the government's doing or not, do, not mm. doing. And clearly, when we look back 40 years and, and beyond that from a, a social democratic perspective, we didn't have the societal pressures that we have now. We didn't have the information channels, social media, et cetera, that we do now. I think, you know, there is no doubt that uh, very um, extreme uh, views have, have an outlet now in a way that they never had before. Mm. But I think the case that um, I and my colleagues, as we have in the book, would make is actually a social democratic approach is the best way to help the most people um, to live that, you know, to, and to bring the liberal part of me into, you know, you know, achieve uh, and, and gain the, the best life that uh, is, is available to them. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been great to talk to you, Wendy. And I've got one final question. Um, we've discussed coronavirus throughout the podcast and you mentioned the lockdown earlier. And because of that, obviously people aren't able to do things that they would have normally uh, done. But we're seeing the vaccine uh, being rolled out across the country and hopefully things will soon get back to some semblance of normality. 
when they do, what one thing that you haven't been able to do because of the lockdown and coronavirus are you most looking forward to being able to do again? Well, I think at a very fundamental level, it's just hugging loved ones that don't live in the same house as me. Um, my stepdaughter and our boyfriend just got engaged in October and my stepson is uh, and his girlfriend are due to have a baby imminently. And obviously they didn't expect that they were going to, mm. you know, when they said that they were expecting a lockdown baby, I'm sure we didn't anticipate that we would still be in lockdown. Mm. So I'm coming to terms with being a being a, a, a step granny shortly, but that's wonderful news. So there's that. And I think a lot of people would say that. My funny one that I would say is, you, you may or may not know this, but um, my sport is Shinty, the Scottish sport of Shinty. Oh. I was the first female director of the Act Association. Oh. And I last had a game of Shinty on the 2nd of December. We had a sort of um, women's game that over 28s played the under 28s. And other than hang a Shinty stick, stick in my pink ribbon in the members, <laughs> in the, in the members club, cloakroom in parliament when I became chief whip just as a bit of a joke and um, I haven't actually uh, picked up a, a, a shinty stick uh, other than that so I'm very much looking forward to the opportunity to get playing again. Uh, well I hope that uh, you will be able uh, to play shinty again um, <laughs> soon. Uh, thank you again for coming on the podcast. If people want to find out more about the book and more about yourself uh, where should they go? Um, so follow the Social Democratic Group on uh, um, social media channels, in including uh, Twitter. And uh, for myself, you can follow me as Wendy Chamb LD on Twitter, uh, Instagram and, uh, and Facebook. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.